I vaguely recall a bit done by a Jewish stand-up comedian where he makes fun of the formula of most Christmas specials. According to him, it breaks down to, Oh no, Christmas has been ruined! But wait! This echoes the typical structure of a three-act story. It is often repeated because it's an emotionally satisfying way to weave a plot into the confines of uh, 22 to 125 minutes. Charlie Brown Christmas, despite sharing some parallels with that, is a unique exception. It's a singular achievement despite seven decades of sequels, imitations, parodies, and cultural ubiquity. Uh, I saw it while I was very young and struck by how it addressed the holiday season with a direct, unpretentious honesty rarely seen in seasonal programming. So, for this, the third of my four Christmas episodes for 2020, we're doing Charlie Brown Christmas. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. And joining me for this one is my nephew Toby, who is 10. Hello, Toby. Hello, Uncle Ryan. There was some dispute before we started as to whether or not your mother would join us as your chaperone for this one. Because uh, while we were watching it, you kept dashing off and hiding under your chair and such whenever Charlie Brown did something embarrassing or the other kids were mean to him, which is like two-thirds of it. We weren't sure if you are going to handle it, but you've expressed confidence that you can share this solo. Yes, I can. All right. Why do you think you felt that way while you're watching Charlie Brown be continuously humiliated? Uh, were you empathizing with him? I don't know. Well, empathy is when you look at the feelings of others, particularly their suffering, and it reminds you of similar incidents in your life where you felt that way and you feel a sort of twinge of embarrassment uh, by proxy. Is that what you went through while you were watching Charlie Brown? Kind of. Kind of? Okay, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but first let's go over the plot in case it's been a while since you've watched it. On their way to join their friends ice skating in a frozen pond, Charlie Brown confesses that the impressed jollity of the Christmas uh, season has paradoxically left him feeling depressed. You know, Christmas keeps getting built up to him as this big deal, and it should be something that he has to feel happy about, and he keeps feeling let down by that. This is a pretty common feeling amongst many of us, more on that later. After Linus's reproach and some insults from Violet, Charlie Brown visits Lucy's psychiatric booth. She suggests that he may be uh, able to snap out of his gloom by getting more involved, adding that the school Christmas play needs a director. En route to the auditorium, Charlie Brown is further dismayed by how Christmas has been uh, commodified by commercial interests. Snoopy is crassly decorating his doghouse for a lighting contest while his sister Sally is petitioning Santa for cash in lieu of gifts. At the play's rehearsal, Charlie Brown is upset that the nativity scene has been updated with jazzy dance numbers and Lucy's insistence on casting herself as a Christmas queen. Seeking to reestablish a more traditional mood, Charlie Brown and Linus set out to add a Christmas tree to the set dressing. While looking through the tree lot, Charlie Brown settles on a weak little sapling that, ironically, is the only non-synthetic tree there. Linus is skeptical about this choice, but Charlie Brown is insistent that the sapling will look great once it's decorated. When they return to the auditorium, the other children soundly ridicule Charlie Brown for selecting a meek little tree. After they walk away laughing, a frustrated Charlie Brown asks if anyone knows what Christmas is all about. Linus responds by quoting an annunciation to the shepherds in Luke 2, 8-14. Convinced that he can salvage the situation without help, Charlie Brown takes the tree home. After coming across Snoopy's prize-winning doghouse, he removes a large red ornament and adds it to the tree. When its weight causes the sapling to buckle over, a dejected Charlie Brown walks away. 
The other children, feeling a little bit guilty after listening to Linus's monologue, have followed Charlie Brown home. Declaring that the tree isn't so bad after all, Linus wraps his blanket around its base. The kids then decorate it into a proper Christmas tree by waving their arms around in front of it. Charlie Brown returns to find the tree in full glory, prompting the kids to launch into a rendition of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Alright, is there anything about that recap that you'd like to add that I might have overlooked? No. Alright, you think I got everything that was pertinent? Yeah. Okay. Before we start talking about the themes, which is when you're in, I'm going to start throwing a lot of curveballs at you. Let's talk a little bit about the development, how this thing was made. By the early 1960s, the Peanuts comic strip was among the most popular in America. TV producer Lee Mendelson approached cartoonist Charles Schulz about a documentary about it. Schulz agreed because he enjoyed Mendelssohn's documentary about Willie Mays, the great baseball player. After being told that the documentary would need a minute or two of animation, Schulz recommended director Bill Melendez, whom Schulz worked on in a TV commercial for Ford. Dave Brubeck was approached to score the documentary, but he was unavailable. Uh, Mendelssohn happened upon Vince Guaraldi's recording of Cast Your Fates of the Wind, a track from his jazz impressions of Black Orpheus LP that had become a fluke hit. Guaraldi was uh, quickly brought in. Well, a 1963 screening of A Boy Named Charlie Brown was received warmly at an advertiser's convention. No one was interested in sponsoring the documentary. It has never gotten an re official release, although you can get a DVD of it if you send in to the Charles Schulz Museum. It's also on YouTube, because of course it is. Uh, later on, a marketing executive at Coca-Cola asked Mendelssohn if the Peanuts crew would be interested in doing a Christmas special. Mendelssohn lied and said that they'd been working on an idea for ages. He was then uh, asked to present an outline in four days. Mendelssohn promptly phoned Schulz and told him that he uh, sold the Charlie Brown Christmas. What's that? responded Schulz. Uh, that's a new show that you and I have to come up with this uh, weekend, Mendelssohn replied. After a lengthy, dramatic pause, Scholes casually agreed. The team was given six months to write, produce, edit, score, and animate the special. They finished ten days before its network premiere. Scholes wanted the script to concern the uh, true meaning of Christmas. He also wanted to include lots of snow and ice skating, reflective of his childhood in St. Paul, Minnesota. Scholes also came up with the Christmas play plot and suggested the juxtaposition of jazz and Christmas carols. Linus's monologue was a sticking point. Almost no Christmas specials up to that point had overt religious themes, and Mendelssohn tried to pressure Scholes into dropping it. Scholes responded with, if we don't do it, who will, which apparently won him over. Mendelssohn suggested adding a Christmas tree to the special after uh, reading Hans Christian Andersen's The Fir Tree with his family. Scholes expanded on this, adding the desiccated appearance and its reappraisal of the story's climax. Mendelssohn proposed a laugh track, a common feature in TV specials at the time, but Scholes rejected this outright, insisting that the canned laughter was lazy and that audiences didn't need to be told when a joke was being funny. The script wound up being 80 pages long, and the storyboards were drafted by Mendelssohn, about six panels per shot. This is banged out over the course of a few weeks. Now, for the animation for this, the network wanted an hour, but Bill Melendez insisted that he couldn't do an hour's worth of animation in four months. Melendez asked William Hanna and Joseph Barbera for advice in directing TV animation because he hadn't done any up to that point. They wouldn't give him any. Melendez started his career working on Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi for Disney. However, he bitterly left the company during the 1941 uh, strike and moved on to Looney Tunes shorts. He uh, animated under Bob Clampett, Arthur Davis, and Robert McKimson. He eventually moved to UPA, where he worked on uh, Gerald McBoing Boing and many other shorts. He founded his own studio in 1963. I think this is noteworthy because the UPA stuff was explicitly marketed to adults, and it had a flat style based on modern art 
and uh, New Yorker cartoons. Furthermore, it had limited animation, which means that the animators didn't redraw entire frames, but variably reused common parts between them. A good example of this would be Yogi Bear's collar in the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. That collar separated him from the rest of the body, so they could just reuse Yogi Bear walking and then just focus on his face. This is used very prominently in the Dover Boys in 1942. Uh, these techniques were done artfully, uh, as many other UPA shorts. However, most productions, especially Hanna-Barbera, employed them to save time and cut costs. Overall, the special had about 13,000 drawings with about 12 frames per second. They animated in fours. This was not much. Now, Snoopy was an exception. Melendez is quoted as saying, He can do anything, move and dance, and he's very easy to animate. Now, moving on to the cast of this, uh, Toby, you noticed this. At the very beginning, you asked if those were real children, and I said yes, they were. So, good ear, Toby. Yay! The special used actual children, a rare move at the time. This is Melendez's choice. He had employees tape record their kids at home and just brought in the ones he liked to do various characters. Charlie Brown is voiced by Peter Robbins. This was a difficult person to cast. Mendelssohn, Melendez, and Schultz all wanted someone who was downbeat and kind of blah. Robbins was eight years old at the time. He had done many commercials, but this was his first, like, strict TV gig. Most of the children who uh, worked on this, they thought it was super cool, and unlike certain other situations, say Christopher Robin, their schoolmates actually thought it was neat, and it made them popular, and they kept, you know, bugging them to recite dialogue and such. Toby, would you say that if you were on a Charlie Brown special, that it would be received well by the people at your school, or would they just make fun of you? They would be fine with it. I can understand that, because uh, a lot of the people at my school actually watched Christmas like Charlie Brown specials whenever they air on TV or anything like that. Sadly, Robbins ended up being yet another case example of what happens to child stars. He apparently has schizophrenia, which was not diagnosed until much later in his life. Had a lot of instances with substance abuse and domestic violence, so yeah, not Matilda. Alright, next up, Chris Shea as Linus Van Pelt. This was another tough person to cast because they wanted someone who was really sophisticated, just imbued with a childlike innocence. They ended up bringing on Shea as uh, Linus because they liked his lisp. They thought it was very Linus. Uh, how did you feel about Linus's line readings? Eh, I didn't really care about Linus, that whole thing. Really? Because Linus is one of my favorites. I, I think his like gentle nature and his lightly philosophical underpinnings, or at least it's what I like to think I was when I was a kid. Probably wasn't. Probably a bit more of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, you were. Yeah, you being 10 years old, you know exactly what I was like when I was 10 years old. Uh, because my mother told me about this? You can't trust her. Okay, Tracy Stratford was Lucy. They wanted someone bold and forthright for this. Stratford's voice changed after production, so this is her only performance as Lucy. Uh, Sally Dreyer, who voices Violet in this special, will perform Lucy for the remainder of the 1960s. Whenever the kids would age out of the roles, they would just bring in new kids. Now, you asked me who was Snoopy, because Snoopy has a voice in this, or at least he makes little noises, especially when they ask him to Im imitate animals. He goes like... <laughs> Sometimes. That was Bill Melendez, the director. Mendelssohn knew Snoopy was the fan favorite character. He's your favorite, right, Toby? He's my favorite character of the entire movie. Why is Snoopy your favorite, Toby? Um, probably because his, what he does is very funny, and I've noticed that in Mob's reactions to it, too. 
Peanuts and the Charlie Brown, in a way, is like the Venture Brothers and Bob's Burgers to follow it. Sort of a meditation on the nature of failure, which is not a common thing in cartoons. Usually cartoon characters win at the end, but Charlie Brown never does. And Charlie Brown just sort of gets up and keeps trying again. And while Snoopy has his share of failure, he's a terrible mystery writer, for example, he just sort of escapes into delusional fantasy. And that's something that we all wish we could do sometimes. I mean, whenever you have a rough day at school, don't you just want to sit on top of your doghouse and fight the Red Baron? That, that's what <laughs> that's how it occurs to me. Well, sometimes, that, not really. I just kind of want to take a nap or play video games. Mendelssohn balked at giving Snoopy a human voice, although in the comic strip, he has word balloons, since the other humans can't do it. But they, he imagined him being sort of more of a Harpo Marx figure, doing most of his comedy through sound effects and pantomime. Melinda suggested that he record gibberish and then speed it up, and he also did this for Woodstock later on, the little bird that hangs out with Snoopy after, like, 1968 or so. This ended up being just the definitive Snoopy in outside media. Archival recordings of Melendez are still used for Snoopy to this day, who is in the Peanuts movie, for example. Now, the recording for the voice actors was banged out over one day. Jefferson Airplane was in the recording booth next door, and they thought it was adorable that these kids were doing Charlie Brown voices, so they came in and made a big stink out of it and got their autographs. Apparently, Grace Slick still has hers hanging up in her house, which I think is very sweet. Yeah, it is very sweet. Now, my favorite part of this is the music. You asked me who did all the music for this, and I told you that it was a jazz pianist named Vince Guaraldi. Why do you like the music for this? Is there something about it that you think is a little different from uh, all the other cartoons that uh, we watch around this time of year? It sounds a little fun. It's like... I don't know, Toby, you're dead on. If you do too much of that, we're going to get a copyright strike. <laughs> Now, Giraldi composed Linus and Lucy for a boy named Charlie Brown, and it was reused here. He came up with it sort of on a whim, and he called up Mendelssohn and said, I, I have an idea for the special, but I want to play it to you now over the phone or else I'm going to forget it. And Mendelssohn was reticent because playing something for you over the phone is dumb. But uh, Giraldi did it anyways, and he says, at least in retrospect... He claims that he knew all along that this was going to be seen as a big deal. And about five feet to the left of me, as I am speaking, is some kind of like Hallmark CVS toy thing where if, if you press a button, Snoopy's going to play the Linus and Lucy theme for you. I love that thing. It's my favorite thing that we've gotten that, like, for Charlie Brown things. Yeah, no hyperbole there. There are some new pieces composed for this. Skating and uh, Christmas Time is Here. Mendelssohn wrote lyrics for Christmas Time is Here on an envelope over the course of 15 minutes when they realized they are going to open the special that way. Now, the first session had uh, bass player uh, Monty Budwig and drummer Colin Bailey. Then two weeks later, Jerry Granelli and Fred Marshall uh, did the second session, and that's where the majority of the show's incidental music came from. Vince Guaraldi is one of my favorite piano players. He doesn't have the poise of Bill Evans, the complexity of Dave Brubeck, the innovative eccentricity of Thelonious Monk, the rhythm of Horace Silver, or the cerebral cool of Herbie Hancock, but what he brings to this is a core insight to lyrical melody. One can always hum his solos, and 
He has a sort of elegant, deceptive simplicity to the way he plays, and also a melancholic undertone because, as I said before, a lot of people see uh, Charlie Brown as a kid-appropriate meditation on the nature of failure, and Guaraldi's piano solos, particularly on Christmas time, is here, lend an atmosphere to it that just sort of lifts up the line readings of the various characters. And that makes me think of something. Uh, out of all the various parodies of the Charlie Brown specials, one that strikes me is from South Park, where the character designs are very clearly a riff on the Charlie Brown ones. There's one where Stan Marsh just looks directly at the camera and says, Why do one all of the Charlie Brown specials, the characters always talk like this? Have you noticed that, that they sort of have the staccato rhythm to them, Toby? Yes, I have. This was because they used actual children for it, as I mentioned before, and they weren't able to memorize their lines, and a couple of them, uh, the younger ones, the little girl who voiced Sally, was only five years old, and she didn't know how to read. So they had to give her the line, sometimes syllable by syllable, and have them record it like that. And often, the characters are reading words that they don't fully understand. Yeah. Like when Lucy was going over all those phobias. You could sort of tell the little girl saying those lines might not have been able to clearly articulate those words uh, when asked what they mean. I mean, they could have used actual older kids, like 11 and 12-year-olds, because they would know what those words are and know how to read them. For the uh, singing parts of it, the St. Paul's Episcopal Church Choir was used. Uh, they had been employed previously on uh, Vince Guaraldi's uh, album, uh, Guaraldi at Grace Cathedral. Each kid was paid about $5 for this. I'm not sure what that is in 2020 money, but it couldn't have been that much even in 1965. It yep. would have probably been worth like $10 in 2020. You heard it here, Toby did the conversions. Okay, when the network was presented with the special, they hated it. Uh, they felt that the pace was too slow, that the animation was too simplistic. Once again, they were given four months to make this thing. And they felt that the music was very ill-suited to the story. Mendelssohn is quoted as saying, I really believed if it hadn't been scheduled for the following week, there's no way that they were going to broadcast that show. Melendez was embarrassed by the animation, and he felt that it was going to be a disaster. Although a couple of people who worked on it were like, what, are you kidding? This is going to work so well. It's going to run for 100 years. It was aired on CBS on December 9th, 1965, and it had 15,490,000 viewers. Do you think that was a lot? That is way too many that I can count. I can't even calculate those numbers in my brain because I'm only a 10 year well, to be fair, when numbers get high enough, humans are bad at deciphering that sort of thing. I can understand that 15 million is a lot in an abstract way, but if you ask me what 15 million dollars looks like if you dump it on a pool table, I, I can't actually imagine that. Yeah, neither could I. To break that down and clarify, 15,490,000 viewers is about 45% of everyone who was watching TV in the United States that night. It was greeted with universal critical acclaim, and the soundtrack album was rush-released by Fantasy Records, uh, ultimately selling 4 million copies. CBS promptly asked for more Charlie Brown specials. Among many things in its impact is that 
it killed the aluminum Christmas tree fad. Up to that point, it was fairly popular for people to go out and buy fake aluminum Christmas trees, but they were zing so hard in the special that within five years, they stopped even making them. About halfway through this, we Googled what aluminum Christmas trees even look like because, you know, I watched this in the early 90s and they were long gone by then. You've never seen one, have you, Toby? No, I have not. Yeah, all the fake Christmas trees we have are plastic now because, yeah, terrible things, but there have been a number of alterations to the special over the years. For example, I already mentioned that it was sponsored by Coca-Cola, so there is a lot of product placement for Coke products throughout this. Uh, they've been trimmed out of most broadcasts, uh, home videos, and streaming versions. We didn't see any Coca-Cola stuff when we watched this. Wow! In the opening, Snoopy flings Linus into a Coke sign. Uh, this is why, in the opening, when we see Linus get thrown off by Snoopy, we never see him land. <laughs> Now, one of the often cut sequences is when the kids are throwing snowballs at the tin can on the fence. You asked what they were throwing it at. I had to tell you it was a can just because the animation is so simple. Now, some people theorize that this was supposed to be a Coke bottle, but no, it, it was a can. And then at one point, Linus just absolutely killed the thing. Yeah, yeah Linus puts a snowball on a sling and sort of David and Goliath's that thing <laughs> off. This is usually cut out just to squeeze more room for commercials in. This thing gets kind of cut to the bone over the decades for that reason. However, since 2002, a fuller edit of the special started airing on ABC in one-hour time slots alongside Charlie Brown's Christmas Tales in order to make it seem more full and to keep people from complaining. However, in 2020, Apple acquired exclusive rights to the Peanuts media. Facing criticism for putting the specials behind a streaming subscription paywall, Apple did allow PBS to broadcast them without commercial interruption this year. You know, Charlie Brown Christmas won a Peabody Award for uh, Outstanding Children's Program, and it won a similar award uh, in the Emmys. Only Mendelssohn and Melendez were called up to accept, but they dragged up Scholes, who uh, then gave the acceptance speech. And I will recite the entirety of the speech right here. Charlie Brown's not used to winning, so thank you. And that's the speech. That's literally the whole thing? That is the whole speech. I mean, he's a gag-a-day cartoonist guy. He knows how to get to the point. Now let's talk about the theme stuff. This is your inning, Toby. You're up. All right, first thing I want to mention is seasonal affective disorder. Now, this is a form of dis uh, depression that strikes many people uh, over the course of various seasons, particularly the Christmas one. This leads to depression, uh, low energy, overeating, sleeping in too much, and heightened anxiety in general. One thing I want to ask you, Toby, is that, to paraphrase a Christmas story, the kid year often revolves around Christmas. Uh, you get a lot of toys then, you get a whole week off of school, there, there's cookies and decorations everywhere, and a whole lot of, as I put it, impressed jollity, mandatory fun, as Weird Al would put it. Has this ever felt artificial to you? Do you ever look at it and feel a little disappointed after it's over? Yes. Yes, I do. You know, what about it? Do you think that we're trying too hard? Uh, a little bit. You know, because in December, the days are really short. I often go up to go to work while it's dark out and then come home when it's dark out, and especially this year with the pandemic, I haven't been able to see a lot of people, and the lack of natural sunlight, which human beings need in order to function psychologically, it can weigh down on you. And then, out of nowhere, we got this thing where you have to spend a lot of money and act like you're really happy, and it feels like, why? 
And out of all the Christmas specials, the Charlie Brown Christmas one seems to address this with the degree of honesty that, say, the Grinch and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer doesn't have the courage for. <laughs> Do you think there's a degree of accuracy in the Charlie Brown special that isn't in some of the other ones? No, not at all. Do you think the, uh, the Grinch approaches it with the same nuance? Kind of. Oh, yeah. how, do you, how do you feel that way? Because it's... That it's the Grinch trying to stop Christmas, and Charlie Brown's not looking forward to Christmas because he's always depressed on Christmas. Yeah, the Grinch fails too, but he seems pleased that he fails, and he wants to live on a mountain away from everybody, which I felt that way. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Besides the Grinch. Alright, the next thing I want to bring up is the commercialization of tradition. The Charlie Brown Christmas special came out over 50 years ago, but even then, there were complaints about Christmas being commodified into a commercial enterprise and evading its true meaning. Which begs the question, has Christmas always been like this? As I discussed in last week's video about Muppet Christmas Carol, most of the traditions that we associate with Christmas only date back to about the mid-19th century. Uh, for example, Abraham Lincoln never had a Christmas tree, which is weird to think about. That is weird to think about. Also, doorknobs didn't exist back then. The first doorknob was patented in the 1870s. So you couldn't open a door to bring your Christmas tree into your house. Well, they had latches back then. And also, people didn't cut down a tree and then bring it outside and then hang stuff on it. That being said, uh, Christmas became a commercial enterprise when it became a family-friendly holiday during the Victorian era. For example, Thanksgiving was moved during the Depression in order to create extra holiday shopping weeks in order to sort of stimulate business during one of the worst financial crises in world history. So even when we're talking about an era that is almost evading the cusp of uh, living memory and will do so within the next 10 years or so, Thanksgiving is still getting jerked around by Christmas. For sure. And the idea of Christmas not being a religious holiday, as I mentioned earlier, the Charlie Brown Christmas is rare amongst Christmas specials during this period over 50 years ago, where there is a direct reference to scripture. The ones beforehand, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, in addition to being an hour long, Charlie Brown Christmas special is only 22 minutes, those ones are incredibly secular. And it sort of made me think to how Japanese people uh, approach Christmas, because most Japanese people aren't Christian, so they're on board with the whole Santa and Frosty the Snowman, all that, all that's good for them, but not so much the Jesus bit. And as I keep ramping up to, Peanuts as a study of living with failure, because no matter what we do, or how successful we are, or how many blessings we have to count, if we look inside ourselves, just really approach our interiority, there's at least a couple of things where we fall short of, and who we are and who we wish to be aren't going to be exactly the same for most people. Sometimes they're psychotic narcissists, but let's not talk about those. This is supposed to be war heartwarming. <laughs> Getting back, after talking about all this stuff, why do you think that whenever you watch Charlie Brown fail or the other kids being mean to him and call him a blockhead and stuff, Why'd you have a hard time watching that? Because while I was setting up, you were singing Five Nights at Freddy stuff, and that stuff's spooky. But Charlie Brown getting humiliated because he brought a crappy tree in, that stuff you can't <laughs> handle. That stuff you're struggling with. I, Why do you think that is? I, 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 I've got nothing to say about that. It's just the way my brain works is what happens, all right? Well, it means you care. It's a good thing. If Charlie Brown's suffering just fell completely deaf on you, that would be cause for concern amongst us. 
Okay, now that's everything in my notes. Uh, is there anything about Charlie Brown Christmas that I haven't brought up that you would like to mention before we sign off? I got nothing. Uh, I suspected you might. All right, well, thanks for humoring me for one more episode, Toby. That's it. We'll see you next week for one more Christmas episode.